Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello once again sports fans and welcome to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and this week's show we're going to be taking a look at a couple of events that took place in the magical sports year of 1971. This past week we've enjoyed the uh, picks of the NFL draft and it kind of reminded me of something that happened a number of years ago, more more specifically in 1971, where the first three picks of the NFL draft that year were all quarterbacks, just like this year. Also, we're going to take a look at this week's top five, which includes the NBA announcing expansion. Also, we're going to talk about the NBA also integrating as well as one of the most famous sports stadiums on planet Earth opening its doors. And finally, uh, this week's shout-out goes to another event that took place in 1971, which was the NBA Finals, which featured an NBA expansion team winning an NBA title, which they became the quickest expansion team in any of the major sports to win a league championship. We're going to be talking about all of those things This week on this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. So pull up a chair, plug up your earbuds, and let's rock and roll. And we're going to start off this week, of course, with this week's main event. Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta. And this past week, we sat down like all football fans wondering what our team is going to do as far as like who are they going to select for the uh, upcoming draft, which happened this past week. And um, one of the things that we've seen was the three teams, the Jacksonville Jaguars, New York Jets, and San Francisco 49ers do something that has been done before in the NFL, and that is their first three picks of the draft overall were three quarterbacks. Jacksonville picked up Trevor Lawrence out of Clemson University, who had won the national championship with them a couple years ago, as well as uh, Zach Wilson of BYU going number two overall to the New York Jets, and the San Francisco 49ers selecting North North Dakota State star Trey Lance. Now, that has happened before in the NFL when you had three quarterbacks being picked in the first three 
picks of the NFL draft. But what we're going to talk about today in this week's main event is the three. This the one time it was the first time that has happened way back in 1971, and these three quarterbacks were very significant players throughout the decade of the 70s and into the 80s. One of them actually won a couple of Super Bowls. Another one is regarded as probably the toughest quarterback of them all, and another one is the patron saint of a southern city who, even though they've had better quarterbacks there, he is still regarded as one of the most beloved people in that city. In 1971, the top three, the teams that were getting the top three draft picks were the newly rebranded New England Patriots, who for the longest time was the Boston Patriots. They would have the number one pick overall. Following them would be the New Orleans Saints with the second pick, and the third pick belonged to the Houston Oilers. With the first pick, the newly minted New England Patriots would select Stanford quarterback Jim Plunkett. Now, Jim Plunkett was the Heisman Trophy winner of 1970, and he was also the MVP of the 1971 Rose Bowl as he defeated um, Ohio State that year, 27-17, to garnering MVP honors. That was a major upset which opened the way for Nebraska to win the national championship that year. He was the only Heisman Trophy winner to come out of the uni- uh, out of Stanford University, believe it or not, even though you had guys like John Elway and Andrew Luck and Christian McCaffrey who later went to that school. But Plunkett is the only one to carry away the hardware of the Heisman Trophy. The Patriots were coming into that year, coming off of a very dismal 2-12 record, and they were looking for something to spark some magic, spark, you know, to spark that team because th- that team hadn't really had a lot of success despite playing in the 1963 AFL championship game against San Diego, which they lost. But the Patriots needed something, especially they were moving into brand-new Schaefer Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts. So they needed a spark. They needed something. So with that, they got Plunkett, and Jim Plunkett seemed to be the type of star that the Patriots were desperately looking for. And Patriots fans were very, very hopeful to have Plunkett's success because they were ready to put him in his rightful place among such great New England heroes like Ted Williams and the Kennedys and Paul Revere. He would put, they were already putting him within that stature. And in the beginning, it looked like they may have been, they may have found something. In Plunkett's very first game, he placed, they took on the Oakland Raiders, which was the home opener at brand new Schaefer Stadium. And what happens? Plunkett throws a couple of touchdown passes en route to a 20-6 win over the powerful Raiders. It was a big, big deal for that team, especially beating somebody like the Raiders who was who had been a tremendous team. They had played in the AFC Championship game the year before, losing to Baltimore, which eventually won the Super Bowl. But the Raiders was not really the team that a lot of people thought that Plunkett would have success in in his first ever game. But as it turned out, Plunkett was the t- was, was going was, A lot of people thought that Plunkett was going to be the catalyst for that team for years to come, and he was. You know, the Patriots' first season with Plunkett, they finished 6-8 and eight despite, you know, losing a few games that they should have won. And Plunkett 
fell short as winning rookie of the year, which went to John Brockington, which was the running back for the uh, Green Bay Packers. But Plunkett played a significant role of bringing that team back to respectability. Heck, at times, that Patriots team was even dangerous with guys like Carl Garrett running the ball and former Stanford teammate Randy Vataha, a wide receiver, was two very capable and talented players on the outside. But as a whole, honestly, the Patriots really was not a good team. And the team started to slide after this early success. And Plunkett found himself being blamed for a lot of that and eventually found himself traded off to San Francisco in the middle of the decade and eventually found himself in Oakland by the end of the decade. And by 1979, he was pretty much sitting the bench. Then came 1980, and everybody knows what happened in 1980. Plunkett turned everything around. Became the starting quarterback when Dan Pastorini got hurt, actually got his leg broken, and Plunkett became the starter, taking over for Pastorini, and he would end up leading the Raiders to the Super Bowl, beating the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 15 in New Orleans. And a couple of years after that, Plunkett would lead the Raiders again to a Super Bowl, beating Washington in Tampa 38-9 to to win their second Super Bowl under Plunkett. Plunkett is one of, of number, one of a few quarterbacks who won two Super Bowls but, are not, but is not in the Hall of Fame, believe it or not. But I think that Plunkett really needs to be in the, in the Hall of Fame, not only for his play on the field, but his perseverance. He was one of the most, one of the most highly regarded quarterbacks in the 1970s and 80s, despite early success and then kind of floundering mid-career, but then finding it toward the end with the Raiders. Going number two that year, picking number two was the New Orleans Saints. And the Saints decided to pin their hopes of the future on a young quarterback not too far away from where they were. From the University of Mississippi, they picked quarterback Archie Manning, which would become, in my opinion, New Orleans' patron saint. Now, I'm from Louisiana, and I already know Peyton, I mean, Archie Manning, the father of Peyton and Eli, is the by far the patron saint of New Orleans football. Drew Brees has all of the records, has a Super Bowl, has all of those things, and is probably the most beloved quarterback in, or beloved player, period, in Saints history. But Archie Manning, for a lot of fans that are old enough to remember, brought so much fanfare and so much hype, and he was the team's first superstar and for a lot of the older fans of New Orleans, Saints football, he, is, he has a special place in their heart. Coming out of the University of Mississippi, he was the number two pick overall by the Saints that year. And he was finished third in the Heisman voting that year behind Plunkett, who won it, and second place finisher out of Notre Dame, Joe Theismann. He was... Uh, he missed two games in his final season at, Mrs. at Ole Miss because he got hurt, but that didn't, help his, that didn't hurt his draft stock any because he ended up finishing number three in the, in the Heisman voting and the, the number two pick overall by New Orleans, who was still sort of floundering as an expansion team coming into the league in 1967. He was then selected number two by the Saints with a lot of fanfare and a lot of hype coming into 
be the kind of like the, the, the savior, if you will, for that franchise who was looking for some direction, trying to escape their, that brand of being an expansion team. The year before, the Saints finished with a terrible record of 2-11-1, and they were trying to look, look to rebound from that and try to get themselves some footing in the very tough NFC West, which featured the Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco 49ers, who would battle it out each year for the division title. And as luck would have it, they would play the Los Angeles Rams in the very first game of Archie Manning's career as a starter. And he did not disappoint. Manning went 16 of 29, 218 yards, threw one touchdown pass. But most notable of that game was he ran for a one-yard touchdown run in the closing seconds to beat the Rams on that opening day, 24 to 20 at Tulane Stadium. That game in New Orleans is still talked about 50, some, 50 years later of how exciting that game was, and it brought something to New Orleans fans that they hadn't had ever up to that point, hope. But unfortunately, it wouldn't really last long. The Saints would finish that first season, that first campaign under Archie Manning with a record, with, with a record of, well, I'm sorry, with a record of 4-8-2 finishing in fourth place in the NFC West. And it would continue that way for a long period of time. One of his best seasons came in 1978 when the Saints actually had a chance to make the playoffs heading into the final month of the regular season. But unfortunately, a couple of losses within the division pretty much canceled them out of the postseason that year. But Archie Manning is still... To this day, even with the success of Drew Brees, is still considered one of the best-known and best-loved Saints ever. He finished his career with 3,335 3, yards passing for the Saints and with 125 of his career passes coming wearing the black and gold. He would end his career with two seasons with the Houston Oilers and two more seasons with the Minnesota Vikings to conclude his career. Everybody knows his very famous sons, Eli and Archie, and he has a, also has a grandson coming up, Arch Manning, which is supposed to be something special, so keep an eye out for that. With Archie Manning going second to the Saints and Jim Plunkett going first to the uh, New England Patriots, the third pick that year belonged to the Houston Oilers, who was a perennial AFL power during their times in the American Football League, but had fallen on hard times when the team joined the NFL in 1970. With the coming off of that 3-10-1 record in 1970, they were looking for some direction, looking for a big name and a big splash to make at quarterback. So with that, they decided to go with a very, from a, a very good quarterback from a small school out of the Bay Area, out of Santa Clara University, the school that also produced NBA point guard superstar uh, Steve Nash. Coming out of Santa Clara is quarterback Dan Pastorini. Pastorini, throughout his career, when I think of Dan Pastorini, I think of the flat jacket that he wore during the 1979 playoffs where he had two injured ribs, two broken ribs, and still played and quite nearly led the, the Oilers to the Super Bowl, but he just couldn't get past the Pittsburgh Steelers. Pastorini was the third pick overall in the 1971 draft by the Houston Oilers. 
And he was actually a high school rival of, of Jim Plunkett. And coming out of Northern California, the Oilers finished four, nine, and one that year. And he kind of struggled to begin his career. His first win didn't come until Halloween night, a little over a month after the season started with a 10-6 win over the Cincinnati Bengals at Riverfront. Though the Oilers did win the game, Passerini threw four picks in that game. But that didn't deter him because he was one of those physically and mentally tough quarterbacks of the 70s that a lot of people kind of forget about. You know, when you think about the Oilers of the 70s, you think of Bum Phillips and you obviously you think of Earl Campbell. But leading and running the show was Pastorini. Pastorini during his career was one of the most accurate and one of the most feared quarterbacks and one of the more brainy quarterbacks the NFL had seen. As 140 games in his career, he passed for 18,515 yards with 103 touchdown passes. Not too bad for doing a time when running the ball was, was more of the way to go than passing. He is known for his toughness in the 1979 playoffs, as I mentioned, played with a couple of broken ribs and nearly led the Oilers to the, to the Super Bowl where they would have faced off against the Rams. But... Pastorini was one of those quarterbacks that was just so tough and so daring and one of those quarterbacks that in big game moments could deliver when needed. So those three quarterbacks will be forever linked together. Just like these three quarterbacks that were drafted just past week, these three had always been linked. Jim Plunkett, Archie Manning, and Dan Pastorini, three quarterbacks who played the entire length and breadth of the entire decade of the 70s. They were picked in the early part of the 70s and are a special, special part of the NFL's history. That is this week's main event. And please don't forget to, su to, to subscribe to my show and hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. And we'll be right back after this with this week's top five. Hello and welcome back to the show and before we get on with it, one sign that we're growing here at Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is we have a sponsor and that sponsor is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like me and if you're into sports history, you need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, Canada, England, Scotland, and so many more other countries, dating back as far as 1798. Now, get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting the sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also, please check out our Twitter feed at historically speak or historically sp2 for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop a line or two at our email address at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes every week. And now, on with the show. And this week's top five. 
Hello and welcome back to this week's edition of the Top 5 here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And we're going to be taking a look at the, some of the most historical moments in sports history on the dates between April 25th and May the 1st. Beginning with number 5 in 1987, the NBA decides to add four expansion teams beginning in 1988, adding two in 88 and two more in 1989. To try to capitalize on their popularity at the time, the NBA decided to add four new franchises to the fold, you know, taking off from they actually added a team in 1980, which was the Dallas Mavericks. So eight years later, they would add two more teams. The two teams that they would add in 1988 would be the Charlotte Hornets and the Miami Heat. Charlotte became one of the most popular teams right out of the gate because of their color, because of their color scheme. They were the ones who were instrumental in making teal a very popular color for sports franchises throughout the decade of the 90s. And they could be all be brought back to their teal, purple, blue, and white combination that they wore. And they still wear to this day in rep- representing the city of Charlotte and the Hornets. Also, the other team that joined the Hornets in 1988, joining the NBA, weren't as popular because of how they started, and that was the Miami Heat. Miami actually lost their first 20, I think it was 23 consecutive games to start off. They were 0-23 before registering their very first win. So it was a running joke in the fall of 1988 whether they would ever win a game. Kind of harkens back to their... uh, State brethren of Tampa Bay Buccaneers when they started off kind of slow themselves, but the Miami Heat of the only is the only one of the four of these four franchises who ever won an NBA title. The others have yet to register a championship win. The other two would take place in 1989. They would be the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Orlando Magic. They would join the NBA in 1989. Minnesota taking off from where the Minneapolis Lakers took. Uh, start uh, left off when they moved to Los Angeles in 1959. And the Minnesota Timberwolves started playing their games at the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome just, you know, until their new arena, the Target Center, could be built in downtown Minneapolis. As for the Orlando Magic, they had their own arena and everything ready to go not too far away from Disney World and, they, and their namesake, and they were named after the Magic Kingdom, Hence the name Orlando Magic. Number four, Wembley Stadium opens in 1923 in London. Wembley Stadium, to some sports fans, is basically the combination of the Rose Bowl, Madison Square Garden, and Yankee Stadium all rolled into one. It is one of the most famous stadiums on planet Earth. It is the, basically the cathedral of soccer. In fact, the great Pele himself once stated that Wembley is the cathedral of football, the capital of football, and the heart of football. And that actual example could not have been better ex- exemplified in 1966 when England captured his very first and only World Cup title playing at home, beating West Germany 4-2 in the World Cup final, which to many English football fans is the greatest moment in the history of the country. That is their shining moment of British soccer, winning the World Cup in 1966, and it took place right there at Wembley Stadium. 
Number three. Is this time of the year, is springtime, of course you're going to have at least one entry by Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And here it is, 1988. He became the first player in NBA postseason history to have back-to-back 50-point games. In 1988, playing against the Cleveland Cavaliers, Michael Jordan dropped 50 points in game one and came back the next night in game two and dropped 55 the Bulls would eventually win the series and move on to the next round where they would take on the Pistons. But Michael Jordan dropping 50 points in game one and 55 in game two. First player ever to score 50 points or more in back-to-back postseason games. It's Michael Jordan. What else would you expect? Number two, Chuck Cooper becomes the first black player selected into the NBA. Chuck Cooper is basically the NBA's Jackie Robinson. He came into the league for out of Duquesne University, drafted by the Boston Celtics, and became the first black player in league history. He only played four seasons with the Celtics and averaged about maybe eight points per game. But he was significant in that he was the NBA's version of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play in the NBA. And number one, 19, this, this week, 1961 was the debut of Why World of Sports on ABC. For me, that was appointment television every Saturday with me and my grandfather as I grew up in Louisiana. That was the number one thing that we would watch every Saturday. It was cartoons, it was Soul Train, it was American Bandstand, and of course that afternoon it always ABC's Why World of Sports. And hosted by Jim McKay, it was a staple in our house and a lot of sports fans' houses all across the world. So, Shout out to Wide World of Sports, the number one event that took place this week in history, in my opinion, between the dates of April 25th and May the 1st. And now we're going to close the show out with this week's shout out. Welcome back to the final segment of the show. And at this point in the program, we call this our shout out segment. And this week's shout out goes to a, a team that I have pretty much read a little bit about over the years and a team that I've kind of found very interesting. And the team I'm talking about is the 1971 Milwaukee Bucks. Why are they so interesting, you may ask? Well, well, for one thing, this week marks the 50th anniversary of them winning their first and only NBA championship, led by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robertson, and Bob Dandridge. But also what made it to me very interesting is that they are the fastest pro sports franchise ever to win a league title. Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks won their first and only NBA title in only their third year of existence. They were basically still considered an expansion team. But with the acquisition of Oscar Robertson and the drafting of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, they made them instant contenders pretty much overnight. In 1971, they would end up sweeping the Baltimore Bullets led by uh, Wes Unsell, Gus Johnson, and Earl Monroe, beat them four games to none in a best-of-seven series, which was a rarity back then of a team getting swept in the finals. 
Um, again, like I said, the Bucks were, feet were led by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who that year won the scoring title, league MVP, and finals MVP. And that was Kareem before, right as he was getting into his zone as a dominant force in the NBA. As I said, they were the fastest expansion team ever to win a pro sports championship coached by uh, Larry Costello. The Bucks went 12 and 2 in the regular seat in the, in the postseason after posting a 66 and 16 record during the regular season. They would knock off the, the San Francisco Warriors four games to one in the East, in the Western Conference semifinals, you know, led by Rick Barry, Al Adels, and Nate Thurman. Meanwhile, they would face off against the Los Angeles Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, and of course, they had their big three of Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and Will Chamberlain. In that series, however, it would be Elgin Baylor's final series as a Laker. He would retire at season's end. Baltimore would defeat the defending NBA champion, New York Knicks, four games to three, and one of the greatest NBA Eastern Conference Finals of all time, four games to three, and, you, and, the, and the, the list of stars on that series was just remarkable. You had the defending champs with Willis Reed, Clyde Frazier, Bill Bradley, Dave DeBusher, facing off against Earl Monroe and Wes Unsell, Gus Johnson, Kevin Porter, those guys. They were just, just an unbelievable collection of talent on that team. But the, but. As, but I think that what happened at the end of that series was that the Bullets just simply ran out of gas and they had no answer for Kareem inside. Yes, Wes Unsell was one of the greatest centers in NBA history, but he was just no match for young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the, Bull as the Bucks would win their first NBA championship four games to none in a best-of-seven series. And that was this week's shout-out on this week's edition of the Historically Speakers podcast. Now listen... Please don't forget to mash that subscribe button to get new episodes every week. And also, drop a line or two, tell me what you think. And I really, really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you guys listening in this week. And this week was a great show, but I guarantee you next week is going to be even better. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'll give you a shout out next week. Take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? 
I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>